You're listening to a Korean Mail podcast. Deadly. The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Koori Mail newspaper. Jingiwala, welcome to our fifth episode of the Black Room news podcast produced by the Koori Mail newspaper. I'm your host, Nick Payton, and I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Widjibal Wiable people of the Bunjalung Nation, where this podcast is being recorded today. Now, coming up on today's show, we will be taking a look at edition 760, which has just hit newsstands on September 22. First up, I'll be having a yarn with our sports editor, Darren Moncrief, about the genius training plan for the upcoming Indigenous Marathon Project's Midnight Marathon. Then I'll be talking to Niamor woman, Dr. Tracy Westerman, about why she is building an army of Indigenous psychologists in Australia. And we'll wrap up with some stories from our journalist Kirk Page about some deadly education options for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as featured in our massive 32-page higher education feature. With me now is our sports editor, Darren Moncrief. Darren, it's awesome to have you back in the studio today for another Koori Mail Black Room news podcast. Yeah, good to be here. Now, Darren, I'm looking at the front page of our latest edition and we have Rachel Dean from Cairns and yep. Wayne Wallenby from Arukan in far north Queensland, who are both standing proud and looking deadly as they hold up a giant Aboriginal flag after completing a 30-kilometre training course in preparation for the Indigenous Marathon Project's Midnight Marathon, which is going to be held on Arunde country in Alice Springs in October. So, uh, yeah. Darren, I can see that Rachel and Wayne are two of 12 Indigenous competitors and due to COVID have had to make some interesting adjustments to their training regime. So what have the mob had to do this year due to COVID as compared to other years? Yeah, in normal times, the before times, they'd um, gathered together in the one location from across the country at designated areas this one was to be in Jabiru in the Northern Territory. Oh, that would have but, been um, beautiful. But with travel and border restrictions and Can't whatnot, they couldn't. So they yep. were tasked to plotting their own, where, where they came from, their own 30-kilometre course. Um, some states and territories can travel within. So um, 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 the young bloke from Arakoon there, he obviously went to Cairns and teamed up with Rachel and they plotted a 30-kilometre course. Um and that's what the other 10 um, marathon projects uh, crew did as well across the country. Um, and that was about like in the space of a two-week period last last week. Yep. And so uh, so there was Dean and Rachel. Uh, who else uh, set up their own little training? Yeah, we feature Bonnie in Burke, New South Wales. She had to, that's in the sports section, she had to plot her course in her town solo. I love so that very one. very challenging. Well, that one, cause she says that, um, you know, she rang a few of her friends who she knew would be on her route and got them to come out and cheer her as yep. she was coming down. It was, she was, she said, and that actually pushed her over the line. She got to the 20, as you'll know, reading the story, she got to the 25 kilometer mark and just like physically stopped, but she could still see her, um, niece her um, family in their front yard, like quite a, that, that she passed earlier, 
she looked back at them and just thinking, oh, I can't let them down and mm. just push through the last five kilometers. So yeah, that's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the marathoners are, you know, obviously getting healthy and fit and, and running their course. It's conditioning them for the, for the marathon at the end, mm. but also, um, helping them draw from within, you know, that mental resilience and build that up as well. So they can sort of complete their tasks. Cause it's not just a, a physical race. It's, it affects, yeah, um, it's, mental. it's a mental yeah, race right. too. And I love her comment here that after finishing the 30 K run, it reminded her of her true inner strength. And that's Bonnie Smith. We're talking about who said, you know, I thought that digging deep was physical, but this run made me dig really deep mentally too. I'm really proud yeah. of myself and I'm proud to have done my race here in Burke. That is just deadly. That's right. Yeah. I haven't personally done marathons or half marathons, but I've done like city to surfs and, and these big giant obstacle yep. courses. And, and as you, and you get to a point where you just physically, what's actually pushing you along is your mind. Yeah. You go, okay. You just, I, I just identify markers. Okay. Um, that stop sign, I'm going to reach that and then push a little bit further. Yeah. And, and you push another, you go, there's another, oh, there, see that tree. I'm going to push to that tree and then I'll make up my mind when I get there. And you sort of, you, you're talking to yourself a lot. You just, yeah, it's quite fascinating actually, this endurance sports. Absolutely. I've always seen the city to surf and all those marathons. And I, th I mm. like to think that I would be able to do it. I've never done one though. The last little um, marathon type thing I did was a fun run in high school. And as you said, I got probably three quarters through, it might've been a 5k course. It was, it was yeah. fairly small compared to what these guys are doing. Yeah. But I remember getting to the end and not only did I vomit before I finished, <laughs> got to the finish line, I was so overcome with, um, you know, it, it is that physical endurance and you've, yeah. you've got to have done a lot of training. And I remember making it to the finish line. I got across the line, kind of did that whole collapse thing, get to the ground to have to get your breath back. But you know, that was just five Ks, let alone 30 Ks out in the middle of Burke. Yeah. Yeah. I did the, um, Darwin city to surf and a few other, um, events in Darwin. And, but you're right. One of the things, like you got your base level fitness that you always should have and, you know, train with. Yeah. And, but what I found is those big events is, is you also, you also dragged and pulled and pushed along with the crowd, mm. with the, with the other competitors, that mm. mass movement you're you're just going with that too you're you're drawing energy you're drawing energy from each other you know yep. and then as you go obviously you know the adrenaline sort of thing and, and fatigue kicks in <laughs> yeah and then you start you know mind games with yourself start playing mind games so, hey so the marathon is still due to go ahead though in october isn't it in our springs that's right At this so stage. it'll be interesting yep. how how that pans out for some states that are still having issues with COVID and anti-border, understandably the anti-government were quite protective of their border and people. Yep. So that'll be very interesting. You know, it'll be, yeah, it remains to be seen how that pans out. I remember we covered this last year for the Indigenous Marathon mm. Project and the Midnight Marathon. Um, I can't believe a year has gone by, but I remember looking yeah. back to that um, that particular story that we did a write-up on, and the photos were beautiful yeah. um, being taken in the middle of the night. How yeah. how magical is that? It's beautiful. They start around sundown, I think. As I start at sundown. And okay. it's full moon time too, so. So they run into the night and then finish into the night. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's and, just um, beautiful. It's full moon, time of the full moon, so. 
So that would provide Ooh. all the light you would need pretty much. Yeah. Uh, well, look, Darren, let's hope everything still goes to plan for the Midnight Marathon in Alice Springs in October. Now let's yarn about the finals over the weekend. We've got the NRL and AFL. Give us a bit of a wrap yep. up. Yeah, well, obviously um, the big, the two big, the blue tick football codes, as I like to call them, um, uh, culminating in their season's end. Um, this weekend, prelim final weekend in the NRL and in the AFL grand final weekend over in Perth. Um, obviously, what interests us, yeah, that interests us as, as as fans and whatnot, but what really interests us is the brother boys in those football codes who are you know on centre um, stage over in Perth. We got two Aboriginal lads playing with Melbourne in the grand final against the Bulldogs. Yeah. Um, Bulldogs got a few Aboriginal lads in their squad, but they're only young, now, so they're not like quite. They haven't played as much this year. So can we just go um, back a bit? You've got that up to twenty five percent of all players in both codes yeah. are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, basically yeah. it's around it's around eleven twelve percent of all players in the AFL are Indigenous, and about ten percent. Um, in the NRL, mm. so we sort of we um, we round it up. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, you know, like um, yeah, that's what we do. So that's that's huge. It, you know, almost almost a quarter of um, all playing personnel in the, in the two big footy codes are Indigenous, which is quite impressive. Yep. So yeah, that's yep. um, happening this weekend. Yes. What I can tell people is that we have a photographer who is accredited. Um, with us working specifically for us at the grand final. So, um, we got a good little work, um, plan for the day. There's a curtain raiser, um, an under 19s match WA versus SA. And across that, there'll be quite a few indigenous lads. So just, and obviously the big game. And, um, so just let readers know next edition, look out for some great shots of the big game in Perth. Look, Darren, it's been amazing having you on the program again. Thanks for joining me in the Black Room. I'm looking forward to having a yarn with you next time. No worries. You're welcome. The Koori Mail. Knowledge, culture, country, connection. A grim development in the case of the missing Aboriginal children at Bowerville. She's like a puff of smoke just disappeared. Why wasn't there a homicide detective from the start? The clock's ticking. All the leads kept coming back to the one person. Hi, is that Joe? The Barraville Murders. Sunday, 8.30 on SBS and On Demand. Welcome back to The Black Room. I'm your host, Nick Payton, and with me now is Niamal woman, Dr. Tracy Westerman. Dr. Westerman is a psychologist based in Perth in Western Australia, who has more than 20 years of clinical experience in her field. In 2018, Dr. Westerman started the Indigenous Psychology Scholarship Program with $50,000 of her own money, with the aim of increasing the number of Indigenous psychologists in Australia. Since then, the scholarship has grown to become national through her charity, the Westerman Gillia Institute for Indigenous Mental Health, with more than $800,000 raised in ongoing commitments so far. Currently, there are only 218 Indigenous psychologists in the whole of Australia, which means there is only one Indigenous psychologist for every 1,000 Indigenous people who might be in mental health crisis. 
That's why Dr. Westerman is determined to get Australia to a stage where no Indigenous person who's interested in studying psychology is turned away. Seeing the need for more Indigenous students to become involved in the scholarship program, Dr. Westerman organised and staged a fundraising concert in Perth on World Suicide Prevention Day earlier this month on September 10. And with the proceeds, we'll continue to build an army of Indigenous psychologists who will help tackle the problems caused by colonisation. Dr. Westerman, thanks for joining me in the Black Room. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Tracy, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your mob and where you're from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I hail from a very, very remote background, so the um, beautiful Pilbara region of Western Australia, which um, I guess to put it in the context, Western Australia is a very big state, so quite often people don't know where that is. Yep. So Broome would be your um, probably where most people we don't know Western Australia from. Um, we're about a 1,000 kilometres north of that, so very, very remote. Yeah, all the way up. Wow. Yep. Yeah, yeah, big state, Western Australia. So quite remote circumstances I grew up in and, um, you know, had to do distance educational school the year to essentially educate myself yes. through, you know, to get into university. So it's, it's a great, great background, but, you know, certainly very different to what most people are accustomed to. Yep. Now, Tracy, in our current edition, we have got a write-up which um, features you and the work that you're doing for MOB. It's incredible work. Um, and in Thank particular, you. what you're doing um, is what you describe as building an army of Indigenous psychologists. Now, before we get to that, I just wanted our listeners to learn a little bit more about where this has all stemmed from, how it all came about. So let's talk about the Westerman Julia Institute for Indigenous Mm. Mental Health. How did that all come about, Tracy? Well, I guess if you, what I find in life is that if you have an idea that's so obvious to people, um, then it just grows, grows organically. And that's essentially what happened. I'd spent 20 years saying, you know, pretty horrific things in, in communities in relation to suicides and escalating rates of, in, whether it's black incarceration rates at the world's highest, you know, child suicides at the world's highest. And in a country in which, you know, we, this is a first world country and we have those statistics are an indictment on our country, frankly. Mm. So no child, you know, should be dying from want in a world of excess is the thing mm. that that's always challenged me just at a human level. So through absolute frustration, I guess, I guess Julia was born out of frustration, but yep. it's become a, a, a journey of optimism, which is just great. So <laughs> the government, I guess, liked to have inquiries. And what I was finding really frustratingly that every time we'd have a spate of, you know, Indigenous child suicides, the government would um, respond by having an inquiry. Mm. And so we had the 2009 Hope Inquiry, 2016 Parliamentary Inquiry, which I was an expert witness, 2018 Senate Inquiry, and the 2019 Fogliani Inquiry. So, Nick, you're getting a, a, a sense just from that, that, you know, governments, there's, there's, a, there's big currency in inquiries. Mm. So what happens is the community think they've been heard or believe they've been heard, and then everything essentially stays the same. Mm. And so what actually happened was no one was cutting through what those inquiries were actually saying. And every single one of them landed at a very similar thing. And that was that children were dying as a result of a lack of access to services. Mm. And we've had the horrific circumstance just this week of Sherberg community yep. where they've had 12 suicides in, in sorry, 10 suicides in 12 months, horrific circumstance. And everyone is crying out from the rooftops that we don't have access to the services that every Australian has a right to culturally and clinically competent services. Mm. So I picked up the phone that day, um, did a media release, said we're starting a scholarship that's actually under my name, Dr. Tracy Westerman, Indigenous Psychology Scholarship Program. 
And it's not about the money, Nick. I think most scholarships, it's about an exchange of cash, right? Mm. <laughs> this is actually very clearly a program. Yep. So we wanted to basically raise an army. And essentially what we're doing is I'm mentoring every single one of the students in clinical and cultural best practice. And so what, because, you know, psychology is really, is fundamentally it's built upon, you know, a, a foundation of, of cultural exclusion. Mm. So even the training is very mainstream. So the reason why we call it building an army is we literally are building a family and we're building an army of, of Indigenous psychologists that will ultimately go back to their communities because local people always stay. Mm. Local people never leave their communities. And so it, so it, it covers off lots of different things and it's become bigger, big very quickly, which is kind of a good thing <laughs> that Australia has really reacted to it. Well, when I can see here that the Kimberley in particular has among the highest rates of child suicide in the world, mm. that's, you know, that's, that's a real shame uh, on Australia mm. and, and, and our yeah. identity. Yeah, and child and suicide doesn't belong in a sentence, Nick. It, no. It, mm, it, it just doesn't. It, and It's a horrifying thought. Yeah, children, children as young as 10. And when I was in, when I was, I was a finalist in the Australian of the Year, I was a WA Australian of the Year, and my platform was really around making something that's unacceptably invisible, visible to all Australians. And what I was finding was that like people don't like to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. They just don't. Um, mm-hmm. It makes people uncomfortable. Yep. But what you need to do is you need to sort of present it in a way that the average Australian can relate to it. And so I think the challenge then is to get these conversations into the lounge rooms of the average Australian. And that was really my focus when I was, you know, I thought I've got a platform here. So I want Australians, all Australians, to actually feel as if they can have these conversations in their lounge rooms. And so how you do that is you communicate it in a way that engages people in a, this could be my child, this could be my family. And so I'd say things like, imagine if this was your child. Mm. These are Australia's children. Yep. Because the reality of all these situations and circumstances is that we're a minority population. We, are, we cannot continue to burden people who are already intolerably burdened from removal policies that have never really been acknowledged and healed and expect that we're going to continue to fight this by ourselves. So, in fact, a big part of this is inviting all Australians into this conversation because we can't continue to do the heavy lifting by ourselves. We need those allies. We need, you know, people standing up Absolutely. alongside, yeah. helping. Um, yeah. I can definitely. see, Tracy, you were about 15 years old when you decided that you, you <laughs> wanted to get into psychology at such a young age. What was it that you could see happening around the community or not seeing that really made you feel that that was something you were going to get into later on in your life? Yeah, it's a, it's life's an interesting journey, isn't it, um, Nick? So I was I was a mad athlete, and I still am. Um, so that was my future project. I was going to go to the Olympics, and I was, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not yep. a marathon runner still, um, but it's really interesting how life just decides where your path is. And I and I'm a real believer in that. Our elders do say that they say that you know you're guided to where you're meant to be. And yep. so I used to struggle with. I get asked this question a lot. How did you decide at 15? And I used to really struggle to find the answer to that because, mm. to be honest, I didn't know. I had never met a psychologist in my life. Mm. I was doing school the year. I picked up a book and read about the profession of psychology, and I decided that was my life path. Um, how lucky is that? I don't have a real complete answer for it, but 
I've never regretted it. And it just, it must and have just felt right. You know, you knew that that yeah, was something yeah. that sat with you. You, you must have felt that there yeah. was, there was obviously a need for, for you to get yeah. into that. I'm the world's luckiest person. Like I found something that I'm technically pretty good at. Um, I found something that I love to do. I mean, it's very rare you have someone that, you know, I have people, I know people that are really good at something, mm-hmm. but don't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so if you can, you find something you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's what all of our, my, my Dr. Tracy Westman psychology students are all like. Mm. They have that mentality. They are passionate psychologists. And so it's like there's, there's 26 of us now. When you get us in a room, like, you just, like, it is an we're, army. All drinking the cool, we're, we're all drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, you just want to, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when people have this thing where they're all, you don't have the secret handshake Yep. and that's what we're like. We're in a room together and it's just extraordinary to be around. And it's just going to grow and grow and grow, yeah. Tracy. I mean, um, through all of your years of research and clinical experience, I can see here that you have come to the conclusion that there's two kind of contributing factors um, which, you know, um, show that there is a critical need for more Indigenous psychologists. Now, the first you say is the way in which pre-existing trauma manifests following interpersonal conflict. And the second mm. factor is a lack of access to culturally appropriate services. Now, can you yeah. talk a little bit about both of those areas? Yeah, I can. So the first one, I guess, Nick, is a really, it's really challenging. Hey, like we, as psychologists, we are trained in the scientist practitioner model. And that basically means that the science should inform your practice. So when you're struggling with something really complex with your clients, you should be able to look to the science to tell you what works. Now we have neglected, we have dropped the ball. Academic institutions, researchers across the world have not fundamentally provided evidence around what's working with Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real basic thing in terms of when we know that, for example, when someone dies by suicide, we want to know why. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mainstream, what they've done is they've done a lot of research that tells, that answers the why, and that's, a, that's what we refer to as a causal pathway. So we know, for example, that 80% of non-Indigenous people who die by suicide have a psychiatric diagnosis of depression. Right. And that's often comorbid with alcohol and drug use, which is very common. Okay. You know, alcohol is the drug of choice for depression. So what we know as practitioners is, okay, if we get really good at treating the why, which is the causal pathway, let's figure out, you know, how we treat depression. And and what they've done is they've done that. They've said, okay, cognitive behavioural therapies are the best practice treatments. The idea being that if you can eliminate a causal pathway or a cause of suicide, then you eliminate the suicides. Right. So if you look at that in terms of what they've done globally, that's what they've done. They've ascertained that, you know, that, that depression is a very, very strong link with suicide in about 80% of cases. Now, what they haven't done is they haven't applied that same um, framework to why Indigenous people are dying by suicide. They just assumed that we have the same causal pathways. Mm. So my PhD actually threw the cat amongst the pigeons literally and went, hang on a sec, how about checking to see whether the causal pathways to suicide or, or any of these issues, criminogenics even, are different. And no one liked it. Mm. Academics around the world, around Australia said, you cannot have, you, people don't like difference, which is really bizarre. But so what we did was we ascertained that suicide actually does look different that in most of the cases, in fact, we've found that about 60% of the cases, it's, it's really highly impulsive, which, mm. is, which means that it actually looks really quick. And when I was going out to communities, people were saying that. They were saying, yeah, it's really quick. There's no warning signs. 
And the interesting thing is people weren't picking up the warning signs because there was this assumption that people were depressed. Mm. And so they were looking for the wrong things. So if you get the, if you, if you get the why wrong, you get the what wrong in terms of what to do about it. So it was a really big deal. And so now we know that the suicides are really highly impulsive. We go, okay, what do we do about that to fix that in terms of the treatments of best practice? Well, what we know is we go into communities now and we teach people things called distress tolerance skills. We teach people to um, you know, effectively communicate, anger reduction, all those things that we know resulting, give us our greatest chance of actually reducing or eliminating suicide from our communities. Mm. The, ne- the next bit is just really people just not being culturally skilled. And that's a really, that's a really, really, um, you know, again, indictment on our education and, and tertiary institutions that they don't provide that to the average practitioner. Well, it seems, Tracy, that's becoming a big problem. We've got, we've got a lot of professionals out there who are non-Indigenous mm. who do want to help. But yeah. maybe can you explain to our listeners the importance of Aboriginal people helping other Aboriginal people out and, and how that's different to a non-Aboriginal person who's got the best of intentions, how they may yeah. not be able to actually help this situation in, in the way they think they might. Yeah, and it's that thing where you don't know what you don't know. So there's really, well, as you've rightly said, there's so many good intentions, but the training just really lets them down. So mm. a really great example is that when you go to university, you're taught all these um, core, basic, they call them like core counselling skills, mm. which enables you to get get out the story. And if you can't get out the story, you can't prevent and you can't do intervention. <laughs> a lot of those building blocks, Nick, they're actually, they actually have the opposite effect with Aboriginal people in the sense that they shut us down. Mm. So a great example would be um, self-disclosure. You're actually taught, do not self-disclose, do not share personal information with your clients. Mm. Good luck with that. Mob want to know who you are, where you're from. Um, they want to know how you're connected up. Um, Transparency. So what are that? Yep. All that stuff. And so the personal relationship is critical for Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things that, again, the training actually teaches you things that have been tested in the mainstream population. And then the poor average practitioner just goes, oh, okay, let's apply that in its absolutism with Aboriginal people. And then all of a sudden, the client doesn't come back and they're left to figure out they don't understand the why. Mm. And so that's the challenge is, there's a lot of stuff that, that people are getting taught that they don't understand why Aboriginal people, you know, aren't actually coming into services or feeling as if they're not being validated or heard. I really think that, that you know, with university programs um, and degrees, I really think there should yeah. be a prerequisite of understanding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people's sense of belonging to this land before they engage yeah. in studying anything. I mean, anything you study here mm. in Australia, you are studying on Aboriginal land. And I think yeah. there's a lot of people Great. that don't understand that, that jump straight into a course, they get their degree, they become a doctor, and then all of a sudden they... They might step back and go, oh, hold on. How am I meant to help Aboriginal yeah. and Torres Strait Islander people if I've been given no kind of cultural awareness yeah. training or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. And so that's a really great way of, that you've described that beautifully in terms of the advantage that Aboriginal clinicians have. Mm. So an Aboriginal client has to work, has to tell us about 5% of the story Yep. because we've already got the story. Yep. So we don't have to have racism explained to us because we've lived it. Mm-hmm. We don't have to have discrimination explained to us because we, we experience it. So that's the thing in terms of we've, we've walked a mile in the black person's shoes 
we don't need to have that journey explained. Um, and so the first step to healing is that your pain is heard and your pain is validated. And so unwittingly, I mean, we've had so many you know, horrific stories of Aboriginal people going into clinicians and just through the realities of the trauma that most Indigenous people experience, you just got to look at statistics. Mm. Often what happens is the Aboriginal client ends up consoling the counsellor yes. because they cannot, they cannot reconcile the extent of trauma, loss and grief and, and things that sadly a lot of our mob just experience as a given. And so for clinicians, you know, we've lived that journey. And so it's much easier for us to hold people in pain and be strong and, and walk them through that pain and get them to the other side. Now, Tracy, you, if what you've been doing for Mob wasn't enough already, can we just touch on the concert that you held on uh, yeah. September 10, which was on World Suicide Prevention Day? It was a very, very important concert. Um, yep. What happened at the concert? I believe you had some some big names there, some um, <laughs> some awesome performers and stuff like that. Gina Williams, one of those. Um, yeah, tell tell our listeners a, a bit about the Gillia fundraiser. Yeah, definitely. It was really overwhelming, Nick. And I think the thing that, you know, frankly, I get sometimes get quite choked up with what we're doing here. And because what we're doing here is we, this is black people, you know, driving this. This is, you know, predominantly like black artists. Everyone done out of their time. Mm -hmm. I was inundated with people saying, "Sign us up." No one took a, no one took payment. It was just extraordinary. So there's that bit. And then you've got an indigenous organisation you know, funding Indigenous psychologists. And so this is self-determination action. Oh, yeah. And so yep. we had Jenna Williams, AM, and Guy Gauss who signed up in the first year. So they said sign us up for life. They are extraordinary. Um, Bo Jesse Pigram, um, who came number 12 in The Voice, his voice is just extraordinary. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad I'm not in the musical industry because you see the talent and, oh, goodness me, it's just incredible, incredible. in terms of so yep. but quite brutal, I think, because it can be quite a brutal industry. And Naomi Pigram, who, you know, obviously come, the Pigram family are a big deal in, in Kimberley um, in terms of musical family and that a big family there. It was really important. We had Kimberley representation, obviously, because that carried the burden for so long of, you know, child suicides in this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kobe Morrison, who's a new hour boy, who's just beautiful, beautiful kid. And then, of course, we had um, Ash Penfold with Corroboree for Life. And then the big act, of course, was our very special guest, which was John Butler. Yes. Who signed up, signed up literally, um, Nick, within 24 hours of me sending a letter to his manager. And he just, I was blown away. Frankly. What an awesome yeah. brother. When I was on the drum, I did a, a six minute on the drum. Yes. Six minutes. We've now had $80,000 in donations from across Australia. Whoa. Since that? From six minutes. Oh, from six minutes on the drum. That is just yeah. amazing. Dr. Tracy Westerman, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today in the Black Room. It has been an absolute honour having you here with me, and I'm very much looking forward to our next yarn. Thank you so much, Nick, and thank you so much for your um, amazing write-up in the Curry Mail. It's just so important that we get, you know, again, black media, you know, reporting this stuff. It's so important. It's an absolute pleasure, Dr. <laughs> Westerman. And if any of you listeners out there would like to know any more about the Dr. Tracy Westerman Indigenous Psychology Scholarship Program, you can check our show information for links. If this podcast raises any issues for you, please contact the National Indigenous Critical Response Service on 1800 805 801 or Lifeline on 13 14 11.
The Kurimau newspaper is the voice of Indigenous Australia. 100% Aboriginal owned and operated. To subscribe, visit kurimau.com. Welcome back to the Black Room News Podcast. Now, we are going to have a yarn with our journalist, Kirk Page, who is dialing into the studio from where he's working from home under current lockdown restrictions. Kirk, how are you going over there? I'm good, thanks. I'm here in uh, the beautiful Arakwal country and uh, it's blowing up a storm. Yeah, the lockdown is is okay. I'm lucky I'm at home and I'm, I'm working from home. Uh and just trying to, you know, keep, keep, uh, keep, keep on keeping on. Kirk, look, thank you for um, dialing in today. We really appreciate you um, doing that under these circumstances. Now, talking about the the restrictions and everything like that, we know that so many organisations have had to change the way that they operate. And in our current edition, 760, uh, there's a wonderful story about the National Aboriginal and Islander Skills Development Association Dance College, now that's NASDA, and how they are proceeding with their programs in COVID times. So we know for, you know, more than 45 years, NASDA has been developing, you know, the next generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, performers and cultural leaders from all across Australia. Um, and, you know, it has supported more than 800 developing artists so far. So, you know, what, what are they doing, Kirk, NASDA, in these, in these hard times to, you know, make sure people can still um, audition um, to get into NASDA? Yes, well, over the last couple of months during the COVID restrictions throughout the sort of greater Sydney region, they a lot of the students have been doing their classes online. And this is something that's it kind of, it's a little bit sort of counter to what, what it is to sort of go and study dance and performance. It is about being in the room and feeling the energy. And that's right. You know, that's a, that is a big part of it. So yeah. they've been doing their classes online and they'll be taking applications for, for next year for the 2022 intake and the auditions will be all online. So they will they will dial in, and they will be some some of the tutors and some of the uh, teachers, dance teachers, that will lead them through a audition process. Yep. So I guess in a way that takes the that takes the edge off the nerves of turning up because well, usually they would. Yeah, I was going to, I was just going to ask you as a performer yourself, you know, being around the arts for so long, you would be used to having to front up to an audition. Um, I suppose not having done it myself, you'd then, as you said, be in front of all the different people who are, who are watching your audition. What do you think it's going to be like now that you kind of don't have to physically be in front of those people? Do you think it might almost be, you know, um, a little bit not as stressful maybe? Yeah. Cool. Well, it's confronting. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, because in the past they have, they would, they would, uh, people would go and do a week, a week of, uh, of the school. So oh, they yeah, right. immerse yeah. themselves into the school. They would have a week of uh, doing classes, doing cultural dance. Uh, and then they would have an audition at the end of that week. Right. So this okay. is a very different experience. Yep. Okay. 
Okay. And so, look, we are going to put into the show information, uh, if you press on your screen, we will have links to um, NASDA's audition team info. Um, so for all our listeners out there, if you are interested in auditioning for NASDA this year, it's going to be an online process. So look, get your, get your phones out, and I'm not sure exactly how um, the format's going to go, but Look, with, with the digital age that we're living in, um, it's not going to be hard for, uh, for people to get their phone out and, and record their audition, right? Yeah, and they can also get any, if they have any questions or they need any help, they can also contact the NASDA Dance College and they will, uh, yeah, give you, if, you, if there's any questions or any concerns you have, they're happy to have a conversation with any of the people considering the audition for next year and... Yeah, hopefully there'll be a lot of people who are really keen because the school has done some wonderful things. And as you said, it's been running for 45 years and there's been an incredible amount of talent and artists who have come out of that school. So, yeah, if you're thinking about it, I would say just dive in and find a way to yeah engage on this online platform for the audition for 2022. In this edition, Kirk, we've got a massive 32-page higher education feature, and it's got loads of education options and real stories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who, you know, through higher education have, you know, achieved some of their dreams and their goals. Uh, yeah. There's one story in particular that I love on page 41 about Yongu uh, filmmaker Sienna Stubbs, um, who has, you know, gone through her education process to become a filmmaker. Yeah, this is a great story. And uh, as you said, uh, Sienna Stubbs, she's a young Yongu woman from Yurikala up in northeast Arnhem Land. And she just left school. She's been interested in photography. And I know that she's actually, she's published a book or she has some of her work in, in a book. Uh, so she's sort of getting herself out there. And she's also, she made a short film and she has, uh, she, she won an award for the film. Okay. In, in a multimedia category. Um, and also the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Award. Yep. And it's that film screened at the um, uh, Film Fest in Colorado, actually. Um so, yeah, she's a young girl who has been curious and she's made the move. So she's left the community of Yurikala, which is a very small community up in northeast Arnhem Land. Uh, and she does come from a, a background where her mother was a teacher, a really incredible teacher, and she is one of the people who uh, has designed the, the language, the language so part of the language curriculum up there uh, in the schools, in the Yurikala school. She's actually the, the co-principal. That is dead. Um, yeah. 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 And her dad works for the art center. So she, she's sort of grown up and obviously has known what she's wanted to do for a very young age, from a very young age. Yep. And she's, uh, yeah, she'll be, she'll be studying at QUT in Queensland. Yes. That's page 41. We've got a, a beautiful write up there of, uh, Sienna Stubbs. So Kirk, look, also in the higher education feature is the Australian Film, Television and Radio Schools, AFTERS, New Corporate Strategy. Now that's called Creating the Future. Um, so can you tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about the strategy um, and give our listeners a bit of an idea why it's critical that more organisations are taking the path of AFTERS? Yeah, this is a great story. Um, Dr. Romaine Morton is the... Uh is the First Nations outreach person there. And she's 
obviously been developing this strategy and I think it makes a lot of sense because we have the, you know, the, these institutions that want to engage with our, our, you know, our, our people. And there's a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who want to go into these uh, institutions like afters where they learn their skills in film and television and radio. And I think what the really great thing about this strategy that is being developed by Dr. Romaine Morton is that it, it brings in, into, into mind, I guess, the way that we work as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so it's kind of the foundations that are at the core are around, uh, you know, developing a way that we can work together that's based around how people in our communities work and centering First Nations uh, people right inside of that, which means we don't walk into or you know arrive in an institution where it has all of these regulations and rules and criteria around how to learn and what does success mean inside of that so what's happened is there remain is bringing this idea where we look at uh how first nations communities uh function mm. and it's around respecting the, the role of community governance and you know recognizing the importance of First Nations communities in, in a collective decision-making. Um, so what it's doing is it's, it's, it's an interesting way to uh, educate not only the students who may or may not have a lived experience, but also uh, showing the institution this is the way that we can uh, succeed I love this. So the, this is beautiful. Know, so it, yep. It's really, it's a really great thing. And uh, Remain is an incredible person to be leading this. Um, so yeah, that's really exciting. And I think that more organizations could really learn from looking at uh, how to, you know, undo or look at how our institutions are teaching and what is the definition of success. I love their comment here where Aftav has said, the dynamic philosophical and cosmological foundations of First Nations cultures underpins Aftav's yet-to-be-published First Nations strategy, drawing on Indigenous people's understanding of the world to which relationships, relationality and kinship with the natural world are central. And it also goes on to say that this includes acknowledging ancient laws that centre shared ancestry with land, animals and all natural elements as being fundamental to First Nations sovereignty, self-determination, economic and storytelling autonomies. They're massive comments to be putting in your, uh, your First Nations strategy. That's a lot to be held accountable for. Yeah, yeah. And what, what is great about that is that it's a way to show those institutions and those people who are writing, uh, you know, those units of education to say that, you know, we already come to the table mm -hmm. with a really broad knowledge and a way of being and a way of understanding and connecting yep. to knowledge and to learning. So such incredible work, uh, Remain Morton. Um, is is doing there. So wouldn't it be great if other institutions could adopt that way of working? 
I think so. Um, so, Kirk, look, hopefully we see more and more organisations following AFTA's lead um, and embedding First Nations perspectives into their organisations. Yeah, it's really exciting. And it looks like, you know, this strategy is going to develop. And then, you know, out, out of that success, I'm sure it will probably be, uh, you know, shared so that we can take over the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Well, domination now, and we're only going to do that through education. So, That's you know, right. make sure you grab a copy of this edition. As I said, we've got 32 pages of higher education options for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That edition 760 is on sale now. Kirk Page, thank you so much for joining me in the black room. We'll speak to you next time. Thank you, Nick. That's right, you mob. Don't forget to grab our current edition of the Mail newspaper, edition 760, which is on sale now for more education options for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Boogle Bear, thank you for listening to the Black Room podcast. I'm your host, Nick Payton, and we'll be back in a fortnight for a yarn about edition 761. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.